And you'll see there there's some gospel truths for sanctification that uh, we need to keep in mind as we uh, continue to talk about this in Colossians. For instance, consider yourself dead to sin because you died with Christ. Alive with Christ, you have power of the power of the Spirit to live a new life. Risen with Christ, you have a new identity and citizenship to live out. Having the promise of glory in Christ, we purify or prepare ourselves. Dead to sin, put your sins to death by the Spirit. And having put on the new man, put off the old man's deeds. Those are some of the gospel truths that uh, I want us to keep in mind as we uh, ponder what's going on in Colossians. So, starting in verse 5 of chapter 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded of the the prayer of Augustine. Come, O Lord, and stir our hearts. Call us back to yourself. Kindle your fire in us and carry us away. Let us smell your fragrance and taste your sweetness. Let us love you and hasten to your side. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I thought that was appropriate in light of, uh, I want to talk about Augustine for a moment. Uh, for those of you who went through the Church History 1 class, this may be familiar to you. For those of you who haven't, and maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. But um, <clears throat> Augustine's dad was not a good guy, shall we say. He was a womanizer. Though he never left uh, his wife, Monica, this was actually a common situation in that day and also in the day that, that Paul was writing. Um, oftentimes, marriage was about status and having children, and, and pleasure was sought in other ways with other people, and his dad was that way. And Augustine, when he became a man, followed in the sins of his father. He had the wisdom, perhaps, to at least not get married, but he was uh, known to have many mistresses and to have at least one child out of the bounds of marriage. And so... It was uh, because he had an interest, because he was a teacher of rhetoric, he had an interest in the sermons of Ambrose of Milan. And his reputation had, had grown, and so Augustine wanted to come and sit and listen to him speak so that he might learn how better to communicate. And as he did, he started to hear the gospel. 
and he struggled with the gospel. And then one day he and a friend were sitting in his garden and there was a Bible nearby and some kids were singing a song in the next, uh, the next property across the wall and he heard, Tololege, Tololege, take up and read, take up and read. And he felt this, the spirit stirring him and so he opened the Bible and read from Romans 13, which is the passage that happened to open up, the passage that I mentioned last week, where it talks about clothing yourself with Christ and making no provision for the, for the flesh. And Augustine was struck with the heart because he realized that he was making provision for the flesh in how he lived, and he needed to put on Christ. And so he did. He repented of his sin, and in fact, he was a very different man from then out. One story has him walking down the streets, can't remember which city it happened to be in, and he heard this voice, and it was a woman. And she was saying, Augustine, Augustine, it is I, one of his old mistresses. And he replied, but it is not I. The gospel truths. He was a different man. He had a new identity in Christ, and that man was not the same one that she had known in the past. Very different. That's what's supposed to happen when we come to Christ, and there's the the forgiveness of sin, and there's the beginning of a new life that begins to take place. Unfortunately, as the letter to the Colossians indicates, that always doesn't happen in perhaps the way it ought to happen. The Colossians struggled with things, things that we can often struggle with as well. But the gospel realities are intended to change our relationship with sex. The big idea this morning is similar to last week, but uh, kind of building in a little more specific, in that Christ kills your sexual immorality to produce sexual fidelity. He's at work making people who were immoral in that area faithful in that area. So let's work with that this morning. I'm going to kind of work with it this way. I'm going to define it. I'm going to say why it's dangerous, and then I'm going to talk about how to kill it. So that's where we're going to go with this thing this morning. And so the defining it, sexual sin violates lifelong, exclusive sexual fidelity. How's that for a turn of phrase? A mouthful right there. It violates lifelong, exclusive sexual fidelity. Paul was not vague about the sins that the people of of Colossae needed to put to death. He lays out in a couple of lists here some very specific but very common sins that needed to be addressed. These were sins that were very common in that city for a number of reasons. That I've, some of which I've already mentioned. There was pressure on the Colossian Christians to continue to live in this lifestyle. And Paul mentions, you used to live in it. This was part of who you are, he says. Let me get back to that. You must, uh, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. And so many of the Colossian believers had an experience with these sins, and, and perhaps they hadn't gotten rid of all of them yet, and Paul's saying it needs to begin to happen. Let me say this, though, before we get into the not-so-good part of it. 
We have to balance this with the, the notion, the reality that Scripture encourages and revels in. I like that. Revels in. Sexual activity within the context of marriage. It sees that as an incredibly good thing. A beautiful thing. We, we talked, you know, Marty read part of that in, in Proverbs chapter 3 for us. You know, you're supposed to be satisfied and delighting in the wife of your youth, even though she's not so young anymore, perhaps. And neither are you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we, we see that in the Song of Solomon. Some of the descriptions that are there, uh, you know, it's, it's a lover speaking, uh, you know, about the man that she loves, and it's the man speaking about the woman that he loves, and uh, there are lots of things there that uh, are quite explicit. Good, though, because it's in the context of marriage. We see even in 1 Corinthians 7, this, this command, this is a good command, do not deprive one another Speaking to married people, by the way, keep that in mind. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and then come back again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, who had a lot of the same problems as the Colossians in this area of life, um, he's reminding them, make use of God's provision similar to what we read in Proverbs 5. You know, drink from your own well. Don't let it overflow and spill into the streets. Make use of this provision. If you're not going to, may it be for a limited period of time, and may it be something that you're, you know, it's not just I'm mad at you, but it's you want to be devoted to the Lord and to prayer, and it's agreed upon. It's not any of these political games that sometimes married couples can play with one another. So let's get within that broader framework of how Scripture understands it. Let's, let's talk about sexual immorality. It's one word, pornea, in the Greek. And that is basically an all-encompassing word for sexual sin. If it's a sexual sin, it's included in that. So we've got to kind of define what that is. Essentially, it refers to any and all sexual activity that takes place outside the bounds of marriage. If it takes place outside that marriage covenant, then it falls into the category of sexual immorality. And so this would include any sexual activity before marriage. Sometimes there's a sense in culture to use the baseball metaphor that as long as you haven't, you know, crossed home plate, you're okay, you know, and that's not the case. It's really hard to know exactly where to draw the line. I think that if you've gone past first base and are heading towards second base, you're getting really close to crossing that line if you haven't already crossed it. Kevin DeYoung in his book, Whole in Our Holiness, has a whole chapter devoted to the subject, and I I completely agree with him when he says this, that in all of his experience, he's never met a married couple that said, I wish we'd done more before we got married. I've never met that person. You know the people I meet? We went too far before we got married. Those are the people I meet. Never. I wish we, we did more. So, 
sexual activity outside of marriage, before marriage, would be part of this term, pornea. It also includes things like adultery, homosexuality, rape, incest, and a host of other sins that are found in Leviticus 18. And so what happens is is these things are boundaries. God has established boundaries with the marriage covenant, and we are to enjoy what, what we can do within the marriage covenant, but we break boundaries when we go outside of that marriage covenant. And there are different ways we can do that, and each time we break boundaries. And, you know, it, it, sometimes they're rather small boundaries. They seem rather insignificant at the time, but usually what happens is that we begin to, to see the next boundary and go, well, you know, it wasn't so bad breaking this one. Let's see what happens if I break this boundary. And we get more and more boundaries that we begin to break. The culture around us increasingly accepts and applauds these sins. We all know it. And it's not new. For instance, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. If you can't be with the one you love, don't cry. Love the one you're with. Right? That, that new sexual revolution, free love kind of thing is what they're singing about. Slightly more recent, we have REM. This one goes out to the one I love. This one goes out to the one I left behind. A simple prop to occupy my time. It's the song of a singer on the road, taking advantage of the freedom that he has, writing back to the one that he loves, saying that, don't worry about these dalliances. They don't mean anything to me. I'm just occupying time. And it's sort of that double standard that takes place, where we are so quick to excuse our indiscretions and so quick to judge the indiscretions of our partner. Most people, most adulterers, are obviously comfortable with the reality of their adultery, but if their spouse does the same thing, they quickly erupt and anger and judgment. We'll have a technical moment. Thank you. So, back to where we were. Back to where I was. All that fun kind of stuff. Our culture really encourages us to, you know, partake in the, the new progressive, so to speak, sexual mores of our day. It exerts this external pressure to conform. It's not just, hey, do this, but now there's a growing sense, at least in this society, that if you don't, if you're not on the same page with us, there's something wrong with you and we've got to fix it. All you repressed people. But there's also an internal desire to participate because we do have sinful hearts. And so there are times that there are certain sins in this area that will be attractive to us. 
And we have to be honest about that, not with everyone else in the whole universe, but with ourselves and with God. We're just like the Colossians. Okay? So in addition to pornea, he mentions three, uh, a few other terms, impurity, passion, evil desire, which expand upon the foundation of that initial term. Impurity, which literally means refuse, garbage, trash, refers to the pollution that is associated with sexual sin. Because often you feel dirty. It's reflected in various terms. Some of these are dated, but they used to be. Dirty movies, dirty jokes, dirty thoughts. Has, it's that idea of the impurity, the contamination, the pollution that occurs when we participate in these things. And sometimes we participate in some of these things against our will. Sometimes people are abused and assaulted. And usually the common experience of those people is that they feel violated and dirty even though they didn't choose to do wrong. They still have that sense of the impurity of it all. Evil, desire, passion. Here I here believe, refer to inordinate sexual desire. You know, a, a, a desire, a, a, their thoughts, their everything, they're focused on sexual sin and how to satisfy that desire that they have. It's, it's inordinate. It's out of control. Desire itself isn't an issue. It's normal. God made us to have sexual desire. It wasn't like Adam saw Eve and said, oh, look, another person. Cool. He was like, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. A woman. That's good. That's right. In marriage. And so, here it's, it's more that the passion overcomes and overwhelms and leads us down uh, pathways that we shouldn't go. We begin to obsess and focus on these things. Paul in Ephesians talks about this as well. He says, in verse uh, chapter 5, verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Wow. If, I used to you know, read the NIV, and it's like, there must not even be a hint of it. It shouldn't even be within the realm of possibility of taking place. It's, 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 we should be guarding ourselves. as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And so not only are the acts sinful, but we must begin to address the immoral thoughts and, as Paul says here, words. We have to be careful about how we speak of these things. Do we make light of them? Do we joke about them? Or do we recognize that when we speak of these things, we ought to speak biblically about these things? And so God, who is faithful to His people, calls us to lifelong, exclusive sexual fidelity. The danger. Sexual sin affects our communion with God and people. Now, the sexual revolution in America has brought all kinds of problems to the forefront, 
And that's really not as the concern of Paul, but they are a reality. The, the problem of disease. Do you want to know where some of the greatest outbreaks of STDs are in the United States now? Retirement homes. All these old guys popping Viagra. Going crazy. Thinking no one's going to get pregnant. So, disease, unwanted pregnancy, the plague of abortion is all tied to this trying to have um, sex without consequences in our culture. The divorce rate due to an infidelity and other problems. The, all of these kids who grow up with only one parent. That all goes back to this. It's wreaked. We, we have reaped a whirlwind of problems because we want to be free. We want to violate the design of creation. But Paul brings up something else here. The wrath, it is because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. It is because God is faithful to His people that He hates sexual sin. It angers Him. And He will express His wrath in the future on part because of these things. And that's good. Let me say this. For those of you, and I know you're here because statistically I know you're here. For those of you who have been assaulted and abused, the wrath of God is going to come upon that person if they do not repent. Take comfort in the fact that He will avenge and do something that you can't do. Okay? God will make it right one day. Anyway, um, he's not, not only is it the future, but we also see in Romans chapter 1 that the wrath of God is being revealed, you know, and that people have turned away from Him. They've rejected the Gospel, and part of the way that, not the only way, but part of the way is all of the promiscuity and permissiveness in this area. This is evidence of the wrath of God. This is a foretaste, so to speak. A culture falling apart, and then one day God will come and bring the fullness of His wrath. We have to reckon with passages like Hebrews 13. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. need to keep that in mind. Similarly, we, we find in uh, places like First um, Thessalonians 4, the Lord is an, adv- an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So wrath, the wrath of God is going to come upon those who never flee from their sexual sins. Christians like Augustine, like John Newton who also dallied in these sins before his conversion and found freedom and forgiveness. Christians who repent are forgiven of their sexual sin. Don't think that there's nothing you've done that is so bad that you can't come to God. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover that. You don't have to feel if you have been damaged by another human being that you're so dirty that you cannot come to Jesus. He cleanses us. 
He removes that impurity. He removes the stain. He removes the pollution and says, come to me. Christians who repent are forgiven of their sin. But, as we know from Hebrews 12, that sometimes He does discipline us so that we will bear a harvest of righteousness. He disciplines us. If we're not dealing with the sin, He will start to deal with us because He's a Father who loves us and wants His children to share in His holiness. But instead, feeling dirty and guilty, often we play like Adam and Eve, trying to hide behind fig leaves, trying to hide in the woods, hoping that God will not find us. In other words, we lose that sweet communion we are intended to enjoy with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we're guilty and we know it, we want to run. We don't want to go to Him. It eats away like acid at our fellowship with God. You, you stop going to pray. You stop reading your Bible. You, you start, you stop wanting to, you know, go to worship and be with God's people because you, you know you're out of sync with God. You know it. You can pretend for a while, but not for very long. If we belong to Him, which is one of, one of the things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, which Marty also read for us, Don't you know you belong to Him? If you do belong to Him, the Spirit will convict you of your sin and will prompt obedience so you don't stay there. All right? Not being content with the mess you're in, but desiring something better. But if we refuse to put these sins to death, it's an indication. I'm not talking about, you know... You just continue to participate in the same sin willingly, not repentantly. That would be a sign that perhaps you don't really belong to Christ in the kingdom. That's part of why in Thessalonians, I read the end of that passage, but earlier it says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he specifies, because apparently they had problems too that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and fear, okay, not in the passion of the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so he's saying, if you know God, Thessalonians, you will learn how to control your bodies in holiness and honor. The people who don't know God, they've never learned this. They can't know this. And they just go and satisfy every desire that they possibly can. He says this in order that no one transgresses or wrongs his brother in this matter. And then he brings up the idea that the Lord is the avenger of all these things. And so while Paul preached the grace of God, he preached the reality that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, including those of a sexual nature. He he wants us to be clear that that does not mean it's free for all time. But they were to do something specific about their sin. In 1 Corinthians 6, we see that such sins violate our union with Christ, which marriage intends to portray. He says, You are united by the Spirit to Christ. 
And when you go and participate in these sins, you are uniting Christ with that other person. That one flesh thing that we've talked about a little bit before. And this gets to the reality of why God gave us this incredible gift. And it is meant to be part of this one flesh reality for, of marriage in which a person is giving the, not just their body, but their whole selves to the other person. And that is just but one part. It's meant to be met with not just the sexual aspect, but giving yourself emotionally to that other person, giving your total commitment to that other person, receiving all of that from the other person as well. And so that two lives are becoming enmeshed with one another. Not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually and every other way that you can imagine. That's God's original intention. And what happens is, when we continually break that, you begin to not be able to, just as you, you um, it strains your communion with God, it strains your communion with other people that you're supposed to be with. That, in fact, is one of the problems that happens. A lot of people who have been abused, they have a, a, it's very hard for them to connect with, a, with another person, with their spouse, because they have a hard time trusting, and therefore entrusting themselves to another human being. And that can take place in two different ways. There's sort of the hypersexuality of addiction that a lot of people go into, but there also can be sort of the avoidance that some people can go into. They're almost sexually anorexic because it's so distasteful to them. Okay, Different people respond to it differently. But those are the two main ways that people will often respond to these th- to uh, those experiences. Okay? So Keller talks about he talks he talks about this one flesh thing, but he also talks about and you've got the quote there that sex is a covenant good, not a consumer good. And he talks about that when you treat it as a consumer good, what you do is you fall into selfishness, insecurity, and insatiability. I guess I added some of that. But in essence, you know, it becomes all about your own pleasure, and it really becomes comes at the expense of others. Okay, or you just you just kind of really bring it down to only you. John Mayer, the singer, in an interview, talked about. Now, keep this in mind. He's a famous singer who dates supermodels and actresses and all the beautiful people. Right? You know what he'd prefer? He'd prefer to be alone with his computer, looking at things online. That's sad. But that's what it, that's what all of this produces. A disconnect from, hum, from other people and giving yourself to that other person and receiving the other person to yourself to all it is is about the act and about getting your pleasure. And you don't need the other person to do that. At least John doesn't think you do. And so this happens. Not only is it selfish, but we become very insecure because if it's a commodity, all right, you've got to do well to keep that relationship going. You know, it's been a while since I've talked with single people in this kind of, in a different context. But you know, I've heard that people say, 
Well, you know, you've got to give it a few test drives to see if it's going to work. Okay? We, and so it becomes, the pressure begins to grow. And I, I see this in, uh, Pete Townsend wrote a song for The Who years and years ago. Another one of these old songs. That, that really hit this. Was I all right? Was I all right? Did a shadow of emotion just cross your face, or was it just another trick of the light? He wants to know if he was good. He's afraid he wasn't. The insecurity of it all, because it's taken outside of the protection and security of the marriage relationship, where it's not about how great you look, because age gets us all hair loss, weight gain, sagging, whatever. It becomes less about that stuff and more about who you're with, the person you're with. Thirdly, we become insatiable, needing more and more, and we begin to break newer and newer boundaries. I've lived this. This is not fun. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 4. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. In other words, they can't get enough, and they keep going farther. Okay? And that's what happens. I mean, you can be lost, and you can be really lost. Okay? The other night, we went to the, the Kempers, uh, the elders and I, and uh, you know Mike and I were riding together, and we got lost. I got lost. He was just along for the ride. You know. But I mean, I was lost, but I was within... I could have walked to their place if I could find it. <laughs> you know. I mean, just, but I was still lost. But then there's the lost that takes place when you made the wrong turn two hours ago. And, sub- and subsequently made more wrong turns, you know. Now that we have GPSs and cell phones and all this stuff, we're not real. You, you really can't get too lost these days unless you're old school. But you understand, you're both lost, but some are more lost than others. And the the more boundaries you break, the more lost you are, and the harder it is to your repentance to be un- to getting back to sexual fidelity. Okay, the harder it is. Um, the more boundaries you break. But those are the places where Jesus finds us. So we don't do it alone. Okay. I need to move on. So sexual sin corrupts our communion with God and others. And you know what? God hates that. Because he wants you connected to himself and others. So thirdly and lastly, put to death all that threatens fidelity. Again, Paul says, Put to death. This is radical. It is more than just management. He's not saying domesticate your sins. Kill it. I remember back in 2003 reading the story of a man named Aaron Ralstein. And perhaps you've seen the movie about his experience, 127 hours. He was rock climbing in Utah in July of 2003. And uh, foolishly didn't tell anyone where he was going. So it took a few days before they decided they discovered he was missing, but they still didn't know exactly where to look. He was in a slot canyon. 
means it kind of goes down like this. So he's climbing in a slot canyon, and he's descending, and a rock gets dislodged, and it pins his right arm to another rock. He can't move the rock. It's too heavy. He's stuck. He only had water and food for a day. He didn't plan on getting stuck under a rock for, you know, who knows how long. And so the days started to stretch out. He spent five days trying to get out while his supplies vanished. He recognized that his dull multi-tool blade that he kind of got, you know, you know, those things when you, you buy something else and this is the throw-in, he had that. He says it wasn't going to get through the bone of his arm. He realized that he had to do something drastic or he was going to die there. So he realized, that, as he says, an epiphany, so to speak, when he woke up on the last day, that he could use the material that he had to create enough torque to fracture his arm. And then, after fracture, breaking the arm, then he could just cut every, all the tissue around the arm and be free. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> How's that for a pleasant thought? And that is what he did. It took him an hour to cut away, obviously stopping because of pain, blood loss. He had to walk eight miles back to his vehicle. Fortunately for him, he stumbled upon a tourist family from the Netherlands, and they were able to locate they were able to contact the searchers who had been amazingly in that region, and he lived. But you get the idea? He recognized it's the arm or me. And that's what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Recognize it's the eye, the hand, or, or you. We, don't, we can't play with this stuff because it's deadly to us. We have to be ruthless with it. I'm not advocating anyone amputate anything. Okay? That's just an illustration. Right? Want to be clear? No lawsuits. Okay? But we need to have that same radical thing. We need to know our weaknesses. We need to know our proclivities. And we need to cut off every opportunity that we can for, for us to, to kind of go with them. Okay? I remember the first time I had an apartment to myself. You know, I was, I can't remember how old I was. You know, I get my apartment, I sign up for cable, and, you know, of course, here's the, here's the deal. Well, you're a new customer, so you get the free premium channels with the digital box for, you know, however many months it is, and, uh, you know, hoping that you'll keep it. You know, that's what they do. Well, I realized that me and HBO at night, not a good thing. So I bring it back. I recognize the danger. I said, this, I, you know, I need to get rid of this thing. Had to amputate the cable box. Okay? I felt like an idiot bringing this thing back. But you have, you know, two more months of free movies. Not good for me. Have a nice day. Okay? We have to do things like that. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians and also in 2 Timothy chapter 2, flee. That has to do with when you're in circumstances. And now the, the temptation has arisen and is powerful. Don't try to negotiate. Run. 
Get out of there. Flee situations that stir up these strong desires to break boundaries. If you know you have a problem with, with, the, with the computer, you know, as soon as that first little thing in you starts going, shut it down. Flee. That's how you shut it down. That's how you flee. You, you turn it off. Walk away. If you're dating, let's get those dating people. You know, 11 o'clock at night, cozy on the couch, not a good thing, okay? As soon as uh, you start realizing, wow, you know, I start to, I'm wanting to go, a pl- go someplace that I shouldn't be going, it's time to say, you know, I should leave now, honey. Go. Flee. Don't try to tough it out. Run. There's something as well from the Song of Songs. One of the cor- it's the chorus that runs through it, so it's, it's said like three or four times. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field. I have no idea what he's talking about with by, you know, swearing by the gazelles and the does of the field, but anyway, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Meaning, until you're able to get married, don't mess with the stuff. I don't know why people who are 13 think they should be dating. It's lost on me. Because you're bringing to the surface dynamite. Walk away. Be wise. Know that your temptation is temporary, but just because it's temporary doesn't mean it's powerless. doesn't mean it's weak. And it's going to cloud your judgment while it exists. So sometimes it's best just to run away. Don't give in to curiosity. Don't dabble with things. Don't pretend that you're strong. Christmas time, I'm going shopping for Amy. Got to get a gift. And uh, I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I'll go to Victoria's Secret and get her a gift card for when it's bra time, you know? So I go in there and, and you know, yeah. So I'm waiting, and of course the line I pick, that lady has to go on the phone. You know, it's just the way it has to be. And so she's here on the phone, and right here is this life-size thing, poster of a woman. I mean, I can't look this way because there's more over there. I can't look this way because there's more over there. It's like, okay, if I'm actually going to get my wife a gift card, I I basically have to look like an idiot and kind of just do this and... Occasionally peek up and see if she's there, done with the phone call or not. You know, I feel like a complete moron. But you know what? That's a whole lot better than staring at that picture and kind of letting my mind go with that. Okay? I guess I could try to lie to myself. Gee, what would Amy look like in that? But you know, <laughs> not helpful. Not helpful. At all. So, anyway. Part of what we're supposed to use in this battle to put things to death is the sword of the Spirit. The Scriptures. Because that is what God has given us to dispel the lies that our temptation, that sin, will try to sell us. And will also remind us of the great promises that God has given us that are meant to loosen its attractiveness to us. Because God is greater. Christ is better. 
And so John Piper talks about this in terms of not just doing what's right, but preferring righteousness. The scriptures teach us, change our hearts so that we prefer righteousness, we prefer God's promises to expel the desire because at some point we're going to have to say, you know, Christ is greater than this. He's more satisfying than this thing I want and I need to walk away from it. We need to say that. And so we need to realize that sex and marriage is more satisfying precisely because you give all that you are to the other person, both your good and your bad. Realizing that all that stuff that might attract us is just going to kill us. So any honest person will admit that we live in a sex-obsessed society. You might be thinking this is a sex-obsessed sermon. It's supposed to be, um, for a reason. But we th- people think it brings freedom, but we witness the utter destruction of society. And one day, this will bring the wrath of God. By design, you and I were created to live in a one-flesh union, exclusive, lifelong fidelity in which we give all of ourselves to another and we receive all of them. That's what we're made for. And this reflects our union with Christ in which He takes all of us and He gives us, gives us all of Him. We have the fullness of Christ, as Paul said earlier in, in uh, Colossians. Sexual sin, therefore, corrupts our communion with God. It corrupts our communion with one another. The gospel offers pardoning grace and empowering grace to begin removing these things from our lives. And unless we believe that knowing Christ is better than our sexual sin, we're going to remain entangled in that sin. You can come back from all the boundaries you've broken, but you only will if you believe that Christ is greater than all what this offers. Let's pray. Father, it's never easy for us to talk about these things honestly. We feel exposed and frightened and defensive. and Let the joy sink in that Christ is sufficient. That Christ is sufficient to wash away the guilt, to remove the shame that Christ is sufficient to give us new desires, that Christ is sufficient perhaps to give us a new context to live out our faith. Be with each of us in the various contexts we are in to have wisdom and discernment so that we would know the places where we need to run, that we would know the places where we need to be ruthless, that we would know the places where... um, We need you to find us because we're so, we feel so lost. Rescue your people. Purify your people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.